word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the, Lord of, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, the stage is still a uh, work in progress. And uh, we have uh, some more remodeling that needs to be done, some rails on either side of the stage uh, to help with uh, getting up the steps. And um, uh, there's uh, some wiring and some electrical and lighting things that need to be taken care of. And we're going to keep moving forward. But as you can see, it's going to be very beautiful. I like the rounded front. And I like being six inches taller. It took off 15 pounds. <laughs> I was shooting for 12 inches, but they said, hey, you know, <laughs> Uh, we are in the study of holy words uh, this year from January to, to December. We're looking at every book of the Bible. And this morning we're going to be looking at Haggai. Inside of the announcement sheet, you will find uh, an outline that you can use to follow along as, uh, and make notes on as we go through this study this morning. And before we, we jump into Haggai, let's ask God to bless us to open our eyes and to open our ears to his word this morning. Amen. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here, to be your children, to, 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 to understand you as our Father through your revealed Word for all of the gifts of grace that come to us each day. You are mighty and almighty and pure holiness and light. And you reveal yourself to us not just righteous and holy, but as loving and compassionate and merciful. And these things, Father, change us and move us and cause worship to overflow in our hearts. We are just so overwhelmed by Your kindness to us. And we pray, Father, that in all that we say, all that we do, the way that we use the resources that You have blessed us, that we bring honor and glory to Your name in this community. And as we, we study this, this little and, and many times very unknown book of the Old Testament, Father. We're, we're asking You to help us to see it and to hear it in ways that change us. And we ask You, Father, to do it in the name of Jesus and all the church said. You know, they say that there are two kinds of people that wake up in the morning. There are the kind of people that wake up and they just love the morning. Can't wait for the day to begin. They wake up happy, happy, happy. And they do kind of a cha-cha-cha on the way to the kitchen to make that first cup of coffee. And then there's the second group of people that wake up in the morning and they just hate that first group you know, that wakes up so happy in the morning. Now, when you wake up in the morning, what is your first thought? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and you finish it. Be glad in it. Psalm 118, right? 
Well, it is a great day, and it's a day, it's a day to rejoice, and especially after that first cup of coffee and you get the wheels going. And as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, one of the first cognitive processes of the day has to be this. How will I reflect all the great stuff, all the great truths, all the great things that I know about God? How will I demonstrate and reflect that in my life that it will be seen, the greatness of God? And we start out with those great intentions. But then the day gets into full swing. You get busy. Things get complicated. And there's a thousand and one decisions that drive those intentions, those great intentions to bring glory to God in the way that you live, in the way you respond, your emotional life, all of your affections. All of that gets shelved even though they start the beginning of the day as great, great, great intentions. I read an article this last week. It was really a book review about two ways of thinking, what they call System 1 thinking and System 2 thinking. System 1 thinking is quick, it's intuitive, it's effortless. And this is really, when you think about it, this is mainly the way that we operate on a day-to-day basis. We, we, we think intuitively, we make a thousand and one decisions without really thinking about it. We're standing in line and the guy asks us, do you want French fries with that? And we say, absolutely. And he says, would you like to supersize it? Why not? We don't even think. We just make these decisions. It's intuitive, it's effortless, and it's very, very quick. System 2 thinking, on the other hand, is completely different. It's slower. It's more conscious. It takes logic. It's a logical process. You're thinking through all of the data. And it takes effort. And because it is slower and because it is more logic-based and because it is more effortful, it's underutilized. And I think that that is really the way that we operate on a daily basis. We make a thousand and one decisions without even thinking about it. And we underutilize that system to thinking. That's why we need to hear and to heed one of the things that God says to His people through Haggai. In fact, at the very beginning of Haggai, chapter 1, He says it twice. In verse 5 and in verse 7, He says, Give careful thoughts to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. Think about what you're doing. Give careful thought to your ways. Say that with me as a church. Give careful thought to your ways. In fact, that's emphasized that word careful by saying it a little bit louder. And that's say it again. Give careful thought to your ways. Now we're going to jump into this book this morning. And if you've got your Bible, you might want to open them up to the table of contents. And you'll notice in the table of contents where Haggai is located. Right there at the end of the Old Testament. We're nearly to the end. And if you look to to the left of Haggai, you'll see all of those books that we have covered since January. And if you look to the right, you'll see that there's Haggai and then there's Zechariah, which we're going to look at tonight, and then Malachi next week. And then in the beginning of October through the end of December, we're going to be in the New Testament. And in 70 messages, we're going to cover the entire books of the Bible. But this morning, it's Haggai. And Haggai comes on the heels of coming home after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. You know the story. We won't spend a lot of time talking about it this morning. We've repeated this history a lot over the last couple of weeks. But Cyrus is now king of the Persian Empire. They have taken over where Babylon has left off. And he allows, Cyrus allows the Hebrews to repatriate the land in 539 B.C. Now, you'll remember that God has told the prophets to tell the people that if you don't get your life straight, if you don't return to worshiping me and centering me as the supreme value of your life, if you do not begin to live faithfully in obedience to Torah, if you don't begin to get rid of all of the idols in the land and especially the idols in your heart, 
there is going to be a judgment. And the judgment is going to come in the form of Babylon. And Babylon is going to carry you away into captivity for 70 years. And none of the repentance took hold. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and Babylon uh, carries these people away into captivity and, she is, and, and Jerusalem is raised to the ground. Israel and Judah are conquered and that the exile is 70 years. And then after 70 years, according to Ezra, there are 50,000 people that come back to repatriate the land. This is the first wave of, of uh, exiles returning to the land. And because God had said, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And, and the prophet said it over and over again in all these different ways, that it's going to be a, a terrible judgment and the exile is going to be 70 years if you don't change. And it did happen when they came back into the land knowing that what God had said through His prophets had come true. God now has Israel's attention. And the first order of business, once they get back into the land, is to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Rebuilding the temple. It's starting all over again. The centering of all existence, all Judah's existence on the presence of God. And it's all going to begin with worship. But life got busy. And things got really complicated. There's this guy that we read about last week by the name of Tatanai. He's the governor in that kind of the region of the, air, of, of the land of the Middle East. And he is completely opposed. I mean, he's very upset that anybody would, would seek the welfare of, of the Hebrews. And in Ezra chapter 5, verse 3, we're introduced to this guy, Tatanai, that in history is a governor and a, a, a politico who is against the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. And on top of that, not only is there this political opposition that just complicates everything, but life in Jerusalem is difficult. For 70 years, no police force. For 70 years, all of the, 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 the public services are, are, are down and they have stayed down. Everything is in a state of disrepair. Fields are overgrown. Roads have potholes. The, the houses need to be rebuilt and then we read this in verses 10 and 11 of Haggai chapter 1. Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. That doesn't sound very good. I, God is speaking, I called for a what? A drought. On the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. On top of all of those things that have fallen apart in Jerusalem and Israel, now there's a drought. Why? Life got complicated. Life got complicated and all the thoughts of bringing glory and honor to God and the rebuilding of the temple, when it got a little bit tough, when it got a little complicated, all of those good intentions got shelved. It got pushed to the, to the fringes of life. And so God says through Haggai, verse 4, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, meaning the temple, remains a what? Say it. A ruin. You're living in paneled houses. But the temple is in ruins. And then he says in verse 9, kind of the same message, Because of my house which remains in what? Ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house. Your own business. And it's here that really 
the prophet Haggai arrives on the scene just in time to remind the people of three central truths that we find in this book of two chapters. The first one is this, that human life is built around worship. One of the funny things about the Bible is that the Bible never, never says worship. The Bible always assumes that you're going to worship. The Bible assumes that you as a human being are going to know that your heart and your mind and your soul and your body are all designed to worship. The Bible doesn't say or command worship. What the Bible says is make sure that it's God. Worship God. And not only that, in Haggai, worship is to be a priority. Worship is a priority. Haggai arrives on the scene knowing that there's a lot of forces working against the rebuilding of the temple. They're not getting it done. In fact, the work stops for about 16 years. And as I said last week, you know, there was more to the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem than just stacking bricks and mixing mortar. That rebuilding of the temple, that rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, all of that activity was a vivid picture of the rebuilding of the people of God. A people of God who by their worship of God demonstrate this counterintuitive way of living in the world that is full of the briars and the thorns of Genesis chapter 3. It was wrong, friends. It was wrong on their part in Haggai's writings and in Haggai's uh, preaching. It was wrong for the people to conclude that all of those financial woes and the money is not flowing the way that we thought it was going to flow. That the general state of affairs, uh, the disarray in Jerusalem, that the houses are broken down, the local political opposition is being built up, that all of that was a reason, a good enough reason, a sufficient reason to not rebuild the temple. I mean, you know, if you don't look out for number one, who is going to, right? And sometimes it comes down to this. It's every man for himself. And we can identify with that, I think. Sometimes life gets so hard, so full of grief, so complicated, that it's easy to not be a part of worship, right? We get so consumed with what it is that's going around us that the least sensible thing, at least to us at that point, is... To worship God. Life has these upward turns and these downward turns. And those downward turns influence our attendance and our participation. And then Haggai shows up and he says, you know what? The opposition, the need for worship, the general state of disrepair, the lack of funds, the lack of people. You know, Israel is not populated very densely right now. The lack of labor to be able to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. Those are reasons not to not worship. Those are reasons to worship. Haggai shows up and reminds the people that all of those things that are keeping them from rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the temple are precisely the reasons to rebuild worship in their lives. And so he says to them in verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. Sometimes the, the reasons that we think are sufficient to keep us from worship are the very reasons that should be driving us into worship. And so... Worship is really that priority in life that makes the difference, that changes everything. There was this article that was written by Martin Marty a couple of years ago. Uh, I read about it in another book on worship by Marva Dawn some, some years back. It's always stood out to me because I thought, yes, 
Yes, that is, that's the difference that worship makes in life. He says, you know, what is it that makes, difference, make, makes worship make a difference in our life? He says, we find these answers in four critical areas of life. The area of identity. When we worship, we find the answer to the question, who am I? When I worship God, I'm, I'm getting the answers to the question, who am I? In the areas of loyalty. Worship helps us to answer the question of, to whom do I belong? Do I belong just to myself? Am I, am I this autonomous, self-differentiated individual that has ties to nothing in terms of accountability? And I create life as I go? Or, or, or is there a, a, a creator, father, God, being supreme value of the universe that calls me into relationship with Him and because of the holiness and the love and the compassion, the greatness of His, of His, of His presence changes everything about me. How about in the area of values? The answer to the question, what is important? is answered every time we sing with Brad the songs about the great Redeemer and God creating in us a new heart. Or power. Does anybody here need a little extra strength, a little bit of extra power to kind of power through the days from time to time? When you worship, the answer to the question, how am I going to make it, gets answered every time. And until Israel answers all of those questions through the worship of Yahweh, through the worship of God, there are going to be issues in their lives at every level. So the first thing that Haggai reminds us is that human life is to be built around worship. Don't neglect worship because life gets complicated. But the second thing is human life is formed around holiness. Human life is formed around holiness. The things that we do in worship that draws near to God, draws into, the, into a relationship with a God who is holy. And the closer we are to that holiness, the more that changes us. In other words, worship and holiness go hand in hand. One day, some centuries down the road, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that the kinds of worshipers that God seeks are the ones who worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we don't have time to unpack all that that means. Maybe we'll get to it uh, towards the end of the year when we get into the life of Jesus. But I think that one of the things that he's saying here one of the, the signs that you are worshiping in spirit and in truth is that you draw near to God and God to you and you are changed. Your appetites change. Your desires change. Your direction change. You're worshiping God and that very act alone is changing the way that you live this life and relate to everything around you. You begin to be marked by that same kind of holiness. The things that break the heart of God are the things that, that break your heart. The things that God loves are the things that, that you love. You begin to be marked by that same holiness as the object of your worship. The God who is holy, holy, holy. And because the people were not worshiping, they were not living again in a holy way. And Haggai, Haggai asked them some questions to bring again to their mind and to their remembrance all that the Old Testament Scripture, that Torah, had spoken about in terms of the way that they are to live their life in light of God. And so he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. 
If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? That is, does it become set aside as holy? And the priest answered, no. And Haggai says, absolutely, you're right. Then he said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead person touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with you. So it is with this, this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Somehow their rubbing shoulders with God in worship had so little effect, so, so, so much superficiality to it that it did not affect the way that they lived. And so Haggai is challenging the people to connect worship with their lives. To not be hypocritical in the sense that you declare God to be holy, 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 and that we are His people, and yet we do not live that holy, holy, holy kind of life. And then the last thing that he says is that human life has a future hope. Future life has, uh, human life has a future hope. The last three verses of the book. And you know, when you think about it, you, you know, there are times when life gets really complicated. And there are times when, when it's not just complicated, but it gets difficult. It gets painful. It gets, there's suffering. There's, there's grief. It's hard. You feel tired. There's not enough energy in your body to get it through the day, it seems like, for extended periods of time. It just gets tough. And that's why it's, it, it's such a positive thing to know over and over in Scripture that, that human life has a future hope, that life needs hope. To be able to make it. And so here's this Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel has led the people back. But he's in a tight spot. He's a political guy. And he understands politics. And he understands the difficulty of trying to be the governor. Or the newly appointed governor of, of this particular part of the Middle East. It's hard to politically fulfill his role as the new governor of Israel. Because he doesn't have a budget. How are you supposed to operate a government without a budget, without finance, without taxes, without money coming in? There's no revenue. Doesn't have an army to protect the people. Limited resources to meet the expectations of the people. And you know what's happening here is he's looking at this thing in a very political, very tangible, mundane way. But the fact is they have not been worshiping. And so when it comes down to their identity as the people of God, it's not really happening for them at the level that God expects. And Haggai is challenging them to because they're not worshiping. And they don't truly see who they are. And the loyalty and the values are all askew because worship is not happening the way it's supposed to. And the power, the one area in which Zerubbabel really needs more than anything else to know the presence of God is not as keen, not as sharp, not as strong, not as, as felt as it could be because for 16 years the temple has still remained in ruins. And Haggai shows up to tell Zerubbabel that, you know, you're looking at this thing through the ways that most people look at this, but I want you to know that through the eyes of God, through the eyes of the, of, of the people of God, you are now, with all of these things that look like things against you, you are now in a better position to be the right kind of leader of Israel than, he, than you have ever been before. And Zerubbabel looked at Haggai and said, Are you nuts? 
How in the world am I going to be able to do all of this? How am I, when there's no revenue streams, when the labor force is being depleted, when there's political opposition, we don't have an army, there's all of this disrepair, there's all, the fields are overgrown, everything is just falling apart. How am I supposed to do it? And what does Haggai say to him? God. God. It was a lesson that, that not only did Zerubbabel have to learn, but the, the Apostle Paul had to learn his this, this same lesson in his own awareness of his own weaknesses. And Paul is being faced with some tough ministry in Corinth. Corinth, very cosmopolitan, very, very, uh, very much a culture that is not conducive to the faith. And, you know, Paul has some of his own struggles. He has struggles with other people. He has, he has struggles all over the place. And he's beginning to get a little worn down. And on top of that, there's this thorn in the flesh. I don't know what that is. I, lots of conjecture throughout the centuries of what that thorn in the flesh is. And, and, and Paul is just praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. Take this away. How am I supposed to do this work? All of this stuff is just it's messing up the ministry. And finally, God says, you know what? You need that thorn because that reminds you that you're weak. And when you're weak, you're reminded that I'm around. And when I'm around, you're strong. And so Paul goes, ah, how come I didn't get that? Well, maybe Paul had started operating because things had gotten so complicated. Started operating with that system one thinking. It was all intuitive. Things are tough. Things are tough. Got to make decisions. You know, we got ministry to do. And, and God says, you need to slow down for just a minute and just think. And Paul says, man, I get that. I get that. Everything's stacking up against me. Everything is, is piling on top. I'm realizing more and more and more, not only am I getting older, but I just, with my own strength, I'm not able to do this. And then you know what I think Paul began to do? Because he's probably by himself when all of this is happening. I think he begins to sing. Because he says at the end of, of that section in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, you know, that's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties in general. For when I am what? Weak, I am strong. And so back to Zerubbabel. Haggai's trying to teach him that lesson. And he tells Zerubbabel that he is God's chosen leader, his chosen servant for that moment in time. And he says, you know, this God that you're supposed to be worshiping, this God that you sacrifice to, this God that you dedicate your life to, that, that, that you, you, that's revealed to you through Torah, that is revealed to you in the songs of David in the Psalms, the, the words of, of the prophets, myself included, Zerubbabel, are to remind you of the greatness of not just God, but the Lord Almighty. And then maybe somewhere in the back, he says, you know, you need to think about something that Jeremiah said. Back in Jeremiah chapter 22, where God tells the king Jehoiakim, that he is going to, to, to remove the signet ring from off of the king's hand. And the sign that that is so is that Judah is going to be destroyed. 
But now Haggai says God is putting that ring on the finger of a descendant of David. A fellow by the name of Zerubbabel. And in the very last verse of Haggai chapter 2, the very last verse of the book, he says, On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. I... I cannot imagine, since I wasn't there, the effect that that had on Zerubbabel. There's always something powerful that happens in somebody's life when they realize that I'm really not weak. I'm really not outnumbered. You know, God and another disciple of of His is always a majority, right? But what I do know is that many centuries later, there's another empire that has arrived on the scene, the Roman Empire. And at some point, they've decided that they just don't really want Christians around. They don't really understand them, but what they do understand, they don't really care for all that much. You know, there's a lot of things that are happening in Rome that kind of spreads throughout the empire. And towards the end of that first century, the church is under fire. And all of these people all over the kingdom of of of, of God that as it's found and spread throughout the Roman Empire, they're not, they're not all that numerous. They're not all that big. They're the, they don't have all of the resources. They're not very rich. In fact, most of them are pretty poor. They don't have influence. They, don't, they just don't have a lot going for them. It just seems that the guy that sits on the throne in Rome is bigger than the one that sits on the throne in heaven. And, and John writes this book called The Apocalypse, Revelation. And there's this number in there, the 144,000. And, and we'll talk about that later, but one of the things that's so significant to me is that you have the 144,000 here, and you have all of this stuff happening in Revelation that, that's kind of violent, and it's upheaval, and all of these terrible things, but it's an exact number, the 144,000, and then you get past that, and it's the 144,000, and when those people in the first century read that, they may not have gotten everything, but they got at least this, that God doesn't lose a single one, regardless of what's happening. And that, 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 that old apostle, Peter, is writing at a time when, you know, persecution, you know, not looking all that, the escape of is not looking all that promising. And he says, you know, the one that called you is holy, who says, I am holy, calls you to be holy as well as a people. And he says, you know, don't be surprised at these persecutions. Don't be surprised if all of these things are going to break out into your life. And he says there in the second chapter, he says, you know what you are? You're a royal priesthood. A chosen, a chosen people. And I think that there was just something so galvanizing in the church, when they read that letter, and, and Peter is reminding them of who they are. That all of these reasons, uh, the empire strikes back. 
you know, the, the empire bringing the hammer, the, the empire bringing the anvil down on top of them, the, 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 the Hebrew pushback on the Christian church, all of that that was happening that would, might, might force them to go underground, that might force them to, 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 to relinquish worship. As they read that letter, they were reminded that God has chosen them. And that God is good for all of His promises. And that every promise in Jesus, in the Messiah, is a yes for everyone who trusts. And that regardless of what, how life gets complicated, that when you think very deeply on the promises of God, it not only changes you, but it causes you to want to rise up and worship. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. We have this time as an invitation to anyone who needs to respond to God. It may be that, that you've not been living your life at the level that, that Haggai would challenge you or any of the apostles or the, the, the Christian writers would challenge you to live your life. And you know that and you need the prayers of the congregation and you want to you make that right. This is one of those times to do it. Or it may be that you do feel overwhelmed with the complications of life and you know that you don't have it in your own power to make a difference. And you're realizing as you go through God's Word that it's God who not only can make a difference, but wants to make a difference. And that can happen this morning. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. If we can minister to you in any way, through prayer, through encouragement, by helping you to find yourself becoming this day a child of God through baptism and through faith and through confession and repentance, we want you to come down and talk to these men as we stand and praise God together. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died, and Calvary.